What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Enlighten Me podcast. I'm your host, Mackenzie, and you are listening to episode 80 of the show. Before we dive in, I want to take a second to thank a sponsor who is helping to make this show possible. Today's show is made possible by Extrema Cookware. Most home cooks know that Teflon-coated nonstick cookware can add dangerous chemicals to your foods as you cook, but even newer ceramic-coated cookware, which is often advertised as green, contains synthetic bonding materials. Extrema cookware is different. Made from 100% pure ceramic, Extrema is all-natural, non-toxic, inorganic, and non-reactive, and will never leach chemicals, metals, or leads, and it won't change the taste of your food. Extrema cookware is also better for the environment and is crafted from renewable raw materials using earth-friendly manufacturing methods. Use the link in the show notes to shop Extrema cookware today. Welcome back, everyone, to part two of my conversation with Kenan. I told you last week that this is one of my most favorite episodes I've ever done, and I was so excited to share it with you, but I'm even more excited for this week's content. Kenan, the virologist and science communicator, is back to share with us all about the COVID vaccines. I asked him the tough questions, y'all. How do the vaccines really work, and in what ways do they protect us? Why should I get it if I'm a young, healthy adult who will likely be fine even if I get COVID? And how do we know these vaccines are even safe and won't have long-term health effects? All these questions and more are getting answered today. I do want to say that we recorded this episode before the CDC changed their guidelines on wearing masks, so keep that in mind as you listen. And I keep saying it, but it's so true. This was such a good conversation, and I learned so, so much from Kenan. I'll be the first to admit that I've been confused about all the different things I've heard about COVID and the vaccines, whether it's from friends or the news or online, but this conversation really helped to clarify a lot of the misinformation and helped me to understand the science behind a lot of what is going on. I think you're going to find it really helpful also, and remember that no one is here today to tell you you have to get the vaccine. Kenan and I are simply here to give you the information you need to make the best decision possible. While you're listening today, don't forget about leaving a rating and a review for the show. I talk about this every week, but did you know that less than 3% of listeners actually do this? That's such a sad statistic, so help me to beat the numbers. Ratings and reviews help more people to find the show, and it helps those in need because I donate money for every review I receive. Leave a review and also make sure you're subscribed so that you know when my next episode is out. All right, friends, here is part two of my conversation with Kenan. Okay, cool. Well, let's move on to talking more about the COVID vaccines. And I'm sorry that I'm asking you so many questions, but there are just so many questions about these topics. Never apologize for asking questions. This is my favorite thing. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay, cool. Well, can you start with giving us kind of an overview of the different vaccine options? And I don't remember if when I sent you these questions, if this was before the J&J vaccine was kind of put on pause um, or if that came afterwards. But if you don't mind just kind of telling us the differences between those that are available and how they work. Yeah. So we're based, most of your listeners based in the United States. Yeah, most of them are. I definitely do have some European listeners um, and some in Canada, but for the most part, the majority are in the U.S. Okay. Well, either way, I guess we can talk about the two distinct categories. So we'll talk about Moderna and Pfizer, which are the Mm -hmm. mRNA vaccines. Mm -hmm. And then we can talk about the Johnson and Johnson as well as the AstraZeneca, which Mm -hmm. are going to be uh, viral vector vaccines. Okay. 
And so we, we kind of already talked about the mRNA vaccine. It's just made up of those three parts, the instructions to make up a single protein. It's called the spike protein. This is the one that's going to be on the outside of the virus. So your, your immune system is going to see it first. It's pretty recognizable. It'd be like mm-hmm. a guy who has like a giant mole on his face and you're like, that's a bad guy. And it's like, okay, that's pretty easy to distinguish who the guy with the giant <laughs> mole is. Uh-huh. That's so that's that's what the instructions are, and then they're they're housed, they're protected inside this little fat bubble, mm-hmm. which is your cells have little fat bubbles that protect them. And so what happens is it protects your body wants to destroy any RNA that's floating around; it shouldn't be in there, um, and so that protects it from getting destroyed. And then that little fat bubble is going to bind to your cell's little fat bubble, and it's going to put those instructions in there so your cell can read them and start making that protein, that spike protein. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. that's essentially how it works. It's it's that simple. Um, okay. And what's really cool about these vaccines is that it sets a precedent for in the future, if we ever have this, all you have to do is just swap out the instruction that's in there. So if this ever happens again, we say, oh, well, let's take out the spike protein. And let's say flu virus is like really bad and we need a rapid vaccine against this. Let's stick in a hemagglutinin protein, which is the H and the H1N1 nomenclature that you hear with flu. So you can just swap Mm -hmm. those in and out and make really rapid vaccines, which is another exciting aspect of those vaccines. Okay. But yeah, just those, that's all it is to it. Once the mRNA, that little instruction gets into your cells, your cells will make that protein and express it like a little factory. And then your immune system recognizes that protein isn't supposed to be there. It'll destroy those cells that are making the protein. So you don't have to worry about that. It'll destroy the protein. It'll make antibodies that your body can then use in the future to destroy it if it ever sees it on like the real virus. Mm -hmm. And then you have that memory that lasts for a long time. And Mm -hmm. I know people are concerned about like, oh, maybe it'll last for a long time or the the mRNA or maybe it's going to change my DNA. A, mRNA does not change DNA. It's uh, separate from where your DNA actually is. If it was that easy, we would have gene therapy already like easy peasy done. We'd cure so many diseases. So it it doesn't work that way, fortunately or unfortunately. Um, And B is mRNA is really unstable. So it doesn't last a long time. It's just kind of this message that's transiently there. And so it's normally degraded from your body within a few hours typically. So like 72 hours, maybe three days or so, and then it's gone. So even the cells that were making that, they're going to destroy that that mRNA and it'll be gone. So it's it's short-lived and that's... And you just make that immune response. So that's how the mRNA vaccines work. Okay. The flip side are the viral vectored vaccines. So these are the Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca. Mm-hmm. And so what they do is instead of using a little fat bubble, right, they use an actual virus uh, that can't reproduce. So the virus is just kind of like a car. We call it a vehicle, actually. Mm-hmm. It's like a little car that can drive those same instructions to the cell. So it's just a different mode of delivery. Okay. And so in this case, we use the Johnson and Johnson uses a form of cold virus. It's called an adenovirus. I believe I should know this better. I think it's add 26. Maybe it's add 28. Uh, either way, it doesn't matter unless you actually study these. Yeah. There's a lot of there's a lot of them. They have a lot of numbers. They at worst typically cause a, a cold. Um, But these viruses, they don't have, essentially, you can think of like the virus has an outside and then the inside, they scooped out the inside, and then just put the the instructions that mRNA instructions into the inside of that. And so 
the little cold virus is going to go to your cells. It's going to infect the cell like it would naturally do. It'll release those instructions, just like what was happening with the mRNA vaccines. And then your cells will make those that protein, and the same process happens over again. So the real difference between the two of them is just the delivery mechanism of, is it a fat bubble or is it the, uh, the actual a weakened, a dead, hollowed out virus? Mm-hmm. And AstraZeneca uses, instead of using a, a human version, they actually use a chimpanzee version. Uh, their Chadox is a, a chimpanzee adenovirus. So it's even further removed from being able to even potentially cause sickness in humans because it causes sickness in chimps and not humans. Hmm. Okay. All right. Interesting. And I think if I'm right, so I know obviously as of right now, when we're recording this, the Johnson and Johnson vaccine is kind of on pause in the U S to do some further research, right. And make sure it's, it's uh, totally safe. And I think the AstraZeneca one in several countries in Europe is the same, right? I know a few countries have said, okay, we're not going to use this right now. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, there's been, uh, again, the, the Johnson & Johnson was with blood clots. And again, it's scary when, this this has two aspects to it. It's scary when things are paused, mm-hmm. but also on the flip side, I know some people are concerned about, oh, well, we don't know anything about the safety or anything like this. Nobody's looking at this or just pushing this vaccine on us. But it actually shows you that we are very closely monitoring this. Yeah. And the, the highlight of this is that, so Johnson & Johnson there were six cases of uh, blood clots that were occurring, all in young women, I believe, which women's representation in, in research, and that is a whole other aspect. Mm-hmm. But uh, so it was in six cases, and at that point, there had been 6.8 million doses administered, mm-hmm. which means that these blood clots were happening less than one in a million yeah. vaccinations, right, which is a really low number. Honestly, we... in any other circumstance, I was actually surprised when they when they paused it because that's that's a very low occurrence of this happening. But it was severe enough and happening in a population of people that maybe we weren't expecting it to that we decided to be as safe as possible, stop this to look into it more, which really speaks to how highly safety is is regarded in terms of in terms of vaccines, right? Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so that, that's why Johnson Johnson was placed on hold. Uh, I think they, they, I know that they had a meeting. I actually have not, I didn't look to see what the, uh, the updates were. Selfishly, I got my Moderna vaccine and was like, woohoo, I'm done. Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I believe that they have started resuming Johnson and Johnson for certain populations. Again, I, the, oh, okay. the clotting was happening in a specific population. And so I think right. that they have began to resume it with certain restrictions. And so it's not recommended for certain people. Right. Okay. Yeah, no, I agree with you. It Honestly, when I heard that they paused the Johnson & Johnson one in the U.S., it made me feel better because when I heard it's, it's, yeah, six cases out of the millions, I was like, oh, wow. Okay, that makes me feel better about like how closely they are monitoring side effects. So on that note, why is the vaccine, if you can answer this in, you know, a few minutes, I guess, why is this vaccine so controversial? And have you ever seen anything like this in your time as a virologist or just in your lifetime, I guess? Uh, yeah, I think 
So vaccines have always been controversial since the very first time that Edward Jenner, the father of vaccines, decided to put some cowpox into children to prevent them from getting smallpox. <laughs> that, that was the that was the first style. Uh, okay. I, I don't know. Are you familiar with the history of vaccines? No, no, not at all. Yeah, so that's actually where vaccines came from. Uh, vaca, the word, it comes from the word. It's I don't remember what country it was, but I think it's Latin for cow. Okay. And that is because smallpox used to be a really big deal. Uh, it's killing a lot of kids in particular. And okay. this guy named Edward Jenner uh, discovered or made this observation that milkmaids, so these women that were milking these cows, would get these like little miniature smallpox that weren't that bad on their hands when cows would have their cowpox. Okay. And so, but they, they didn't get really sick and their kids weren't getting really sick. Uh, at worst, they get those little pox on their hands and then they'd be all right. And so essentially what he did was he went and scooped the pus out of these milkmaids smallpox and gave it to kids and the kids would get these little pox and then they wouldn't get smallpox and they would be protected mm -hmm. from these really devastating and deadly effects of smallpox. And that was the, the beginning of vaccinations. Interesting. Yeah. Um, but as you can imagine, even back then, people were not that thrilled with the idea of scooping pus from somebody who's infected with a cowpox and putting <laughs> it into their child. Weird yeah. how that's not, a, not an appealing thought. <laughs> and so uh, you could say that that was the beginning of a uh, of vaccine hesitation and, and controversy around, around vaccines. And that's carried on all the way through, uh -huh. through the centuries. And Sometimes there has been very good reasons to be concerned about vaccines and vaccinations. There was with the polio vaccine, there was a place called Cutter Industries that was making an inactivated one. So they're supposed to be killing the, vac the virus for the vaccine. And this was before regulations were as tight as they were. And they made a batch where they did not kill the, the polio virus all the way. And uh, they gave it to some kids who ended up getting poliomyelitis and becoming paralyzed. Or, and some of them died from this vaccine. And that is actually the point in time mm -hmm. where the FDA and the United States government stepped in and put these really high restrictions, which is why vaccines nowadays are the most highly regulated medication out there because of that instance. Mm, okay. But through all of this, this was a very long-winded version to get to uh, hesitation through there. I think <laughs> that the reason that it's such a controversial topic now is because typically we aren't all paying attention to this because typically we're not in the middle of a pandemic where we're all locked in our houses watching the news constantly that's only talking about this. And so now instead of a handful of scientists and maybe some uh, people who are anti-vax or concerned about vaccines for their own personal lives, the whole world is very aware of this and the whole world has an opinion on what's happening right now. And yeah. We also live in a place where the internet exists, and so every opinion can be heard in equal fashion, and it, it just adds fuel to the fire of the controversy around it. Mm -hmm. Totally. So I have never seen this it, to this extent before, although this is also the first pandemic that I have ever lived through in my life. Yeah. <laughs> yes, <Yeah>, same here. <laughs> yeah, no, and it's, it's funny. I was talking with my dad about it, and I was like, you know – I'm pretty sure. So I think I was in high school when the HPV vaccine was developed. And I know I got it. My doctor was like, I think you should get this. And I was like, okay. And I don't remember my parents or anybody really. And maybe it is because social media wasn't as popular then, or at least posting your 
you know, opinions on social media wasn't as popular then, but I don't remember anybody saying like, don't get it. Or, you know, here's why you should ask before you get it or, you know, whatever. I don't remember it being so controversial. And I'm like, man, I hope, I hope it was safe then. And everybody (laughs) wasn't just overlooking it, but you know, it is something to be said for just the influence of our social media. Definitely. Yeah. And I mean, it's got its, its, its pros and cons. I mean, the cons behind it are it allows for a platform for misinformation yeah. to, to be spread, which can fuel more fear and push you further away from what's actually happening and the actual information that you need to make a good decision for yourself, whether that's to get vaccinated or not, just having good information. Yeah. But the pro side to it is that it also allows for many voices to be heard. And so, you know, instead of it just being a handful of scientists who are trying to watch all of this data and say, hey, here's how it is. Now you actually have in-person accounts of like, hey, I got it and I was completely fine. Or, hey, I got it and I got these side effects. Or, hey, I got it and this bad thing happened to me. And you can start to to kind of get like more transparency in, in the whole process, which I think is a really cool thing and something that science as a whole needs more of. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I saw a video that you did online about this. And so I'm not going to lie, I just took some of your questions from that. But I wanted to go over kind of the most common concerns that people do have about the vaccine. And one, you know, the vaccine was made so quickly. So how do we know that it's safe and that there won't be long term effects? And that's a question that I've heard people ask and yeah, just one, I, I I mean, I'll be honest, it was one I was concerned about too at first was like, okay, but you know, what's going to happen in 10 years? Like, do we know, you know? And so what, what do you say to that question? Yeah, that's probably one of the most popular questions and concerns that I hear is how do we know? Yeah. Two parts of that is, was it made too quickly and how do we know what the long-term effects are going to be? Mm-hmm. And so typically when I answer this, I say that this vaccine has been a long time coming. So it wasn't just like COVID-19 happened in November of 2019 and we published the sequence in January and had a vaccine already by November the next year. Mm -hmm. Instead, what's happened is coronaviruses, we've had a fear of coronaviruses spilling over and causing something like this for a while. So back in 2004, we had the original SARS epidemic. Mm -hmm. So SARS just stands for sudden acute respiratory syndrome, Mm -hmm. attacks your lungs. It popped up, it was pretty scary. It had a much higher uh, death rate. I can't remember it off the top of my head. It was somewhere around like 12%, I wanna say, compared to the three-ish percent that we see here, 2%. So a lot more people were dying from it. Luckily for us, general rule, it doesn't happen all the time, is that the more deadly something is, it means that it's less adapted to infecting us. So it it wasn't very good at spreading. And so that pandemic po- or that epidemic popped up. Enough people got sick and died from it that it was pretty scary, but it wasn't very good at transmitting and it actually went away on its own in a year. Mm-hmm. So okay. a year later it was gone. But that was the first warning sign that popped up. And just like now, scientists were like, okay, how do we make vaccines? How do we make treatments? And that's when the research started. So we'll say 2004 was the kickoff point from that. And now this happened in essentially 2020, 16 years later. And it wasn't just like we forgot about it because of one year. Uh, In 2012, we had another coronavirus that hopped over. So that first coronavirus came from bats, the second into an animal called the civet. It's like a cat. In 2012, we had one that came from bats and hopped into camels and started spreading in the Middle East. And so we called this one Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome or MERS. Mm. And this one didn't just happen to go away. 
even scarier yet, it had a 34% fatality rate. So one out of, or yeah, one out of three people who got this died, uh, which is really scary. If that was this virus, oh my goodness, I would never have left my house at all. Mm-hmm. It was really bad odds. And so yeah. that one didn't go away completely. It still occasionally pops up, uh, like camel farmers and stuff like that. And so mm-hmm. at this point, now we have two times within a tw- one, less than a 20-year period, in fact, less than a 10-year period, we've had coronaviruses that have popped over to cause serious disease in humans. And so mm-hmm. we had a lot of scientists who really doubled down and were now not only trying to make vaccines against SARS, but against MERS as well. And mm-hmm. there was a lot of progress. Some of those vaccines were going through phase one, phase two trials. The only mm-hmm. problem is not a lot of people are getting infected again which means that there's not a huge demand for it. And as we talked about, pharma mm-hmm. is all about money. So if mm-hmm. not a lot of people need it, not a lot of people are going to take it, there's not a lot of money for research into it. Yeah. And so it wasn't pushed along. Yeah. But then we come to this outbreak and a lot of people are getting infected with it. There's a huge need for it. And so the United States launched Operation Warp Speed, which dumped over $10 billion worth of money into it so that you didn't have to take all these these steps that like normally hold up research, like recruiting money, trying to find investors. A lot of people knew about it. So another huge barrier that you have to overcome is recruiting people who are eligible to participate in the trials. This, Mm -hmm. everybody knew about it. So we said, hey, we need volunteers and there was no shortage of volunteers. So we were able to skip a lot of the regulatory, or not regulatory, but a lot of the uh, bureaucratic, I guess, and logistical steps that Mm -hmm. hold up these things. Plus we had 16 years worth of research already coming into this. And so with that, we were able to produce these vaccines and then get them tested adequately to say, hey, these vaccines are safe. We've put it in a lot of people. Each of these trials had 20,000 people, 16 to 20,000 people in their vaccine wing uh, arm that were getting it. And we're like, hey, these people, it's not infecting them, or it can't infect them, but it's not making them sick. It's safe. It's effective. It's blocking the virus. We know this because the virus infects a lot of people. And so it's pretty easy. You don't have to wait to see like, oh, did these people not get exposed? You Mm -hmm. can pretty quickly see how many people get COVID who didn't have the vaccine versus how many people get COVID who did have the vaccine. And that's Mm -hmm. how you calculate its effectiveness. And that's the reason that we were able to make it so quickly. Okay. And then the other part of that question is what about long-term effects? And I talked to earlier about vaccines, unlike medications are natural. So they're only in your body for a little bit of time. You just put that little piece of the virus into there and then your immune system takes over. And the long-term effect of the vaccine is that you have this memory cell that remembers how to fight off the the vex or the virus, but there's no medicine that's in you. There's no vaccine that lasts in your body for a long time. It's not like taking insulin or taking ibuprofen or taking a, a medication where you take it multiple times over the extent of your year. Maybe it could build up or, or the extent of your life, and it could build mm-hmm. up inside of you. Instead, it's mm-hmm. it's one and done. And so mm-hmm. we know from our hundred years plus of vaccine research from Edward Jenner sticking smallpox into kids to Mm -hmm. the really high tech research that we've done now over the last, I would say just leaps and bounds in vaccine research over the last 20 years in itself. Um, And the the strength of science is that we know that this really doesn't happen. Typically, if you're going to have an effect from a vaccine, an adverse effect, it's going to happen most likely within the first 72 hours, first three days. 
And then after that, there's some things that might happen within the first month or so, just as your immune system's like regulating itself. And we say six weeks is our cutoff, which is a month and two weeks, because it's really rare for anything that's associated to the vaccine to happen. That'd kind of be like getting food poisoning six weeks after eating a, a bad hot dog. Mm-hmm. The, the only cases that I can really think of are there was a rotavirus vaccine that at 21 days, which was still within the first month, mm-hmm. caused a condition called interception. So it was like a fusing of the, the intestines. Very rare. But we picked up on that and we stopped that vaccine and corrected that problem. But yeah, that was, again, within 21 days was the window for that. So one month. Mm -hmm. And then in the case of live vaccines, sometimes they, since they're still weakened, and again, this is not, this doesn't really happen nowadays. This is more historical, but you could have a low grade infection that like really popped up to show something that was happening from this live vaccine. Uh, like six months to a year later. But again, that's only in live vaccines, which none of these vaccines use a live version of the virus. And again, that's super rare and really easy to tell that that comes from the actual vaccine. Mm-hmm. But outside of that, there's there's really no long-term effects from, from the vaccine other than protection from the virus, which is mm-hmm. a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, no, that is, that's very comforting. So, and you you kind of already addressed this earlier about, well, does the vaccine change your DNA? Was there anything else you wanted to say about that? Uh, I mean, if I don't know how people who are asking this question, how far, where they're along on the spectrum, I think the general answer <laughs> is just no. Uh, it, it doesn't work that way. The central dogma, which is like the central rule of how life works, the central rule of all biology is what it's called, is... It's a process that you have DNA, which turns into RNA, which turns into protein, typically just in that direction. Uh, Uh There's a lot of barriers to trying to go. You really can't go protein to RNA at all. And then RNA to DNA really doesn't happen. mRNA specifically, which are those instructions to make proteins, really doesn't go back into DNA. There's a a virus, uh, retroviruses, HIV, that carry two very special and very specific proteins that allow them to turn their RNA, which isn't messenger RNA, it's its own genetic RNA, but they can turn that back into DNA and that's how they integrate it into your, your, that's why you have HIV for life. That's why it's so hard to get rid of. But again, you need a very specific set of, that's like the exception to the rules. So outside of that, you don't have to worry about mRNA incorporating or changing your DNA because they're gonna, have, the two processes are gonna happen in very separate parts of the cell, and they just don't have that those abilities. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. I don't yeah. know if that's comforting or should, should I go into more detail? <laughs> no, I don't. I honestly don't think so. Only because I feel like that question, not to like, I'm not trying to make anybody feel dumb here, but it's like that's just that's one of those questions that you talked about earlier, where it's like this is just a misinformation kind of rumor thing floating around. <laughs> so yeah, I feel like kind of just saying like, no, it's just not possible is like, uh, that's enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad. Yeah. Yeah. That, that one and the, uh, 
the infertility claims were the two biggest pieces of misinformation that I think I saw circulating a lot that that concerned a lot of people. Yeah, no, totally. I forgot about the infertility one. Yeah, that's that's yeah, that's good. Um, okay, what about um, I know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what about the the side effects? Um, this one, I mean, obviously there are side effects, so that's a valid concern, I think. But I've heard some people say that the side effects can be worse than actually getting COVID and like you know, your chances of surviving from COVID are 99%. So like why subject yourself to having these side effects that could hospitalize you or, or whatever? Uh, so what do you say to that? Well, I guess first and foremost is your chances of surviving the vaccine at this point are 100%. Uh, That's good. So <laughs> yeah, this, the side effects, I can speak from experience. Uh, well, I wouldn't call symptoms not everybody's going to feel bad after they get the vaccine, but if when your immune system starts working, a sign that your immune system is working is that you feel sick normally. That's just, I did a whole post that talks about like the different steps of what your immune system does and how that correlates to why you're feeling crummy. Uh-huh. And so I can speak from experience. I felt pretty crummy for like 18 hours, maybe, uh-huh. maybe a full day. But I would say my biggest thing for why get the vaccine, if it, potentially feels worse than having like say asymptomatic covid is number one asymptomatic covid so the vaccines right now the side effects that we know of right they're feeling achy having a fever some chills maybe some vomiting i've heard some people have even worse reactions where they faint Uh, we have the few with uh the blood clots that are occurring uh in the johnson and johnson or anaphylactic shock which is just that that really strong allergic reaction. Mm-hmm. All of those at this point, to the best of my knowledge, I'm sure that there's probably someone, a few people out there who might have something that could prove me wrong on this, but all of them so far have been self-resolving. And so you feel mm-hmm. crappy for a little bit of time and then you're done feeling crappy and then you've got antibodies that protect you from getting sick with a virus that can actually kill you or what I'm actually more scared of. And I, I hate doing this because I don't want to be part of the fear peddling group. Yeah. But just as somebody who researches viruses and looks through the data that's been happening with COVID is the thing that actually scares me the most, especially as a young person, I mean, relatively young, I'm hitting 30 now, but is the, <laughs> the long-term uh, effects of the, the virus itself. So we know the difference between the vaccine and the virus is that the vaccine is just a piece of the virus, just one protein. It doesn't have the ability to like do anything on its own. It's like a Lego. Mm-hmm. Whereas the virus mm-hmm. is a living, replicating thing. When you're infected with the virus, it is inside of your cells, taking them over, killing them, making more viruses and mutating inside of you. And we've seen that it doesn't do damage, just it does some crazy chaos to, to lungs. Some of the, the extra, the chest x-rays that I've seen are terrifying in young people also. But it's not just affecting your your lungs. It's also affecting, you have receptors for this virus all throughout your body. And we're seeing it's affecting your circulatory system. So it can be putting you at increased risk for stroke, heart attack. Uh, it attacks the heart. It attacks the brain. There's links that have been looking at COVID and it's linked with Alzheimer's disease. And so these are things where you may get an asymptomatic infection, but just by nature of having the infection, there's virus that's attacking your cells. And that could put you at a longer term risk of having some sort of health complication down the line as you get older and your body's not as strong as it used to be. 
I just personally wouldn't want to risk that. The, the vaccine's not going to do that because it's, there's not a virus that's in me that's attacking me. And mm-hmm. so that, that's kind of my, my personal big, big argument for myself of why I was like, yeah, I'm going to do my best not to get this virus. And then even though mm-hmm. I am very prepared that I will probably have to take a day or two off of work after getting my second dose, like in the grand scheme of things, at least I'll feel a lot safer having that than maybe having an asymptomatic infection and then having... I don't know, anything from erectile dysfunction to early onset Alzheimer's coming on mm-hmm. because I got infected with it. So yeah, I hate saying it because yeah. there's lots of people who've been infected and I don't want them to worry about about it, but that is sure. that is something that's definitely lingered on my mind as a, as a possibility and something that gives me more reason to get vaccinated and not get naturally infected. Yeah, no, that's... That's very interesting. I didn't. I honestly didn't know about the long term effects of the the virus itself, and that's something that my husband and I talked a lot about when we were deciding, like, okay, should we get the vaccine? Should we not? Like, we were really up in the air because we had so much like conflicting information from both sides coming at us. It felt like, and it's like, okay, yeah, we are young and healthy, relatively young, like you said, <laughs> and we can probably fight this virus off. Obviously, there's cases of young, healthy people who couldn't, but the, our chances are pretty high that we could. But it's like, nonetheless, you know, having a virus isn't good for your body. Like it's <laughs> just because you can fight it off and you're not going to die doesn't mean it's like healthy for you to catch a virus and have your body fight it off or, you know, even potentially be in the hospital or whatever. That's not something I want to go through necessarily. So yeah, I felt like the vaccine was something I would rather experience (laughs) over the virus itself. So very interesting. Now, what about the different strains? Because that's obviously a concern and it feels like every week on the news, it's like, oh, and now there's a strain in this country, in this country. So how do we know that the vaccine will really protect us? And and I guess I kind of forgot to ask this, but there's been a lot of misunderstanding and partly just because there's new research coming out all the time on the vaccine. But does the vaccine really protect you from getting COVID or is it just that it protects you from hospitalization or how, how does that work? And sorry if you answered that already, but we've, I've had so many questions that no, I might've forgotten, no, but that, <laughs> um, we have it and that's a great one. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So what does the, the vaccine really do and how do we know it'll protect us from the different strains, I guess? So I think a lot of times when you hear it, especially in the news and the media, people kind of have this black and white view and it's like, oh, you've gotten vaccinated and now there's this like magic shield that prevents the virus from even getting into you. Yeah. And that is that is not what a vaccine does. Right. So we, we've talked about how the vaccine works so that you have these, these memory immune cells that can recognize the virus if it gets into you and then know how to destroy it really quickly. And that's mm-hmm. pretty much what it does is so in order for the vaccine to work is you get exposed to the virus. So there is virus that is inside of you. And one of two routes happens. First off is like shortly after you get your vaccine, right? We say two weeks after your second dose of Pfizer and Moderna, or I think it's might be six weeks, four weeks or six weeks after Johnson and Johnson is where you have this optimal antibody response. And so those antibodies, they float around your bloodstream just kind of on patrol. And so the best response then is the virus gets into you and those antibodies before the virus can even get into a cell bind to the virus so you don't get infected. And they they essentially surround the virus and stop it from being able to get into your cells. And then they work as this little flag that your immune cells go, oh, look, this antibody is bound to something. Let's destroy it. 
And so in that case, no infection happens. However, over time, the antibodies that are in your bloodstream start to decline in number and they drop down behind what we call a neutralizing threshold. So neutralizing means it completely neutralizes the virus. Pretty much you don't get infected. But when you go underneath that, you don't have enough antibodies to completely block all the viruses. So then the virus is going to infect your, your immune cell or your, your cells, and it's going to replicate inside of there. And this is where those memory cells come into play. So the cells that are infected, you're still producing virus and they let out the signal that says, hey, help, I'm infected. And instead of you having to wait essentially roughly a week to develop new immune cells with new antibodies that learned how to fight it, Instead, it takes a couple of days, maybe. So like maybe one to two days instead of seven to 14 days. And so you can quickly destroy those infected cells and destroy the, vi de destroy the virus so that your window of you being infected is a lot smaller. And so this kind of feeds into why we still say you should wear masks even after getting vaccinated until the majority of people are vaccinated or until you're around other people who are vaccinated as well. And that's because you still can get infected with the vaccine. The vaccine is just going to, A, help destroy that virus so much quicker so that you're going to get less sick. There's going to be less virus inside of you. Less, you're going to have less virus inside of you for longer. Less, you have less virus inside of you. And when you do have virus inside of you, it's going to be for a shorter amount of time. But if you do have virus that's inside of you, you could still be spreading it. And so by wearing a mask, you stop it yourself from, you have less virus that you're leave it is leaving your mouth and then that less virus is getting caught by it so hopefully you're not going to be spreading it to non-vaccinated people okay that's sort of how how the vaccine works is it it shortens the window that there is virus inside of you which means that you're a lot less likely to get sick which includes dying which is our number uh -huh. one thing that we want to stop you from doing going uh -huh. to the hospital having what we call severe covid nobody needs hospital bills nobody wants to be hospitalized because they're that sick and so really ideally is you'll just end up with asymptomatic infections, which you could potentially still spread, but as more people get vaccinated, it doesn't really matter. I mean, if you have a bunch of people who are protected, then it just becomes a common cold and nobody cares about the common cold. Gotcha. Okay. That, that's really helpful because that you actually answered one of the questions I was going to ask you was like, so if it, if you can still get COVID, then why, why are places saying like, you know, the pandemic stops here when you get your vaccine or like doing my part when I get the vaccine? I think some people have been under the stand, the understanding that like, well, how are you doing your part if it's just for you, like, so that you don't get as sick, but really you are contributing to like, I guess the herd immunity, right? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So herd immunity has two lo or two aspects to it. The, what I was talking about earlier is just if I'm vaccinated and you're vaccinated and I'm infected with the virus and like asymptomatically spreading it, it doesn't really matter for us to hang out because even if I pass it to you, you're going to be protected. I'm going to be protected. So uh -huh. we can act like we're completely normal. Uh -huh. Herd immunity extends to there's a certain percentage of the population that just won't be able to be vaccinated or the vaccine won't work on them. So people uh -huh. who are immunocompromised, say they're uh, on immunosuppressants because they're on chemo or because they have um, autoimmune diseases. So their immune systems aren't going to give them that antibody response. So the vaccine is not going to be useful to them. Uh -huh. You have people who might have allergies to the vaccine and so they can't get vaccinated or are at high risk. They've had some other sort of 
condition that's happened with other vaccines. And so it's not recommended for them to get the vaccine. Mm-hmm. So there, there's always going to be people who I have a cousin who's got uh, Crohn's disease. And so like, that's something that hasn't been studied yet there. So his physicians are holding off on whether or not to vaccinate him or not, just because his immune system doesn't work properly. And mm-hmm. so herd immunity works by if it was a certain number of people get to a vaccinated state where they're just not even the window that they can spread the virus is so small that the virus isn't really being able to jump around from person to person. It's blocking it from the virus uh, from getting to those people who are not vaccinated. Whereas mm-hmm. if everybody's not vaccinated, then there's a lot of people who can potentially have a lot of virus inside of them for an extended amount of time, and then they can spread it to those at-risk people. And so herd immunity is the less that you have that ability, it protects those people who can't, those vulnerable people in the population who can't be vaccinated. Yeah, that's cool. That's another part of doing your part, I guess. So yeah, very yeah. cool. And then the other concern I think that people have is about, okay, well, how long does this protect me for? And I think part of that is just like, well, we obviously don't have years of research on this because the coronavirus hasn't been around that long but or this coronavirus hasn't been around that long but what's the data showing on like how often we'll have to get booster shots because i know that's a concern that people have yeah that's the million dollar question uh and that Mm -hmm. is the the real true question of why we need long-term studies on this is to answer that exact question right there so Mm -hmm. right now we can say i think officially we say six months of protection uh, mm-hmm. I think we just hit the nine-month mark um, okay. for when these studies first came out. Because you have to remember, we had phase one trials that were happening back a, as early as as May, mm-hmm. maybe even maybe even late April. But uh, so those people, we can look at them and see what is the case of reinfection that or infection that's happening. And we're also trying to study that on people who've had COVID and get reinfected. The nice thing about mm-hmm. vaccines versus natural exposure is that with a vaccine, everybody gets exposed to the same exact amount, right? In, in terms of it being a medication, quote unquote, mm-hmm. everybody's exposed to the same amount. So everybody should roughly have the same general level of protection. So we can kind of give a broad statement of you will probably be protected for two years or 12 years. That's when it runs off. That's when it wears off versus if you get naturally infected, if I cough on three different people with COVID, I could give some of them a hundred viral particles, some of them a thousand viral particles, and a couple of them a million viral particles. And so they're all going to get different doses and have different levels of, of reactions to it. And so we know that classic coronaviruses, there's four of them that we get that cause about 30% of our common colds. You end up only having good uh, protection, sterilized or neutralizing protection for about three months to maybe a year. And mm-hmm. so- we don't know what that number is for for a natural infection here. But yeah, so that's why the, the vaccine's nice. And I can't give you a firm number for how long. I've seen estimates that some people say yearly. I think that that's, uh, that might be more of a pharma ploy. Uh, don't hold me to that. But yeah. of course, they want to give you more shots uh, to, to make more money. But I've been saying my projection, and take this as of the roughest grain of salt as a PhD student who's just making guesses is that I think it'll either be two years, 
five years, or I think that we'll have that longer protection that we, it's not as worrisome. So two years, two to five years is is my thought, but we'll only time will tell. Right. Yeah. And then hopefully it will be where we don't have to get those booster shots, right? As we get further and further away from the pandemic. Is, is that right? Yeah. I mean that a big part of that though, we, we mentioned variants, but we didn't get into it. A big part of that is how well we can control this and allow it to adapt hopefully into what's more of a cold for us than a pandemic virus. And so Mm -hmm. I would say in my mind, from the virus side of things, the best case scenario is everybody gets vaccinated. What that Mm -hmm. does is it prevents the amount of people who can act as kind of factories for the virus to mutate and make more and more of these variants. Mm -hmm. And so there's going to be less of that. Eventually the virus will just learn how to, it'll learn how to co-live with us uh, and become more of this cold-like virus. And then as time goes on, hopefully we won't even need, the next generation won't even need vaccines against COVID. That's best case scenario. More Mm -hmm. realistic scenario is that people are going to get vaccinated. There's going to be people who don't. The virus is going to continue to make these variants and mutations. It's going to mutate more so in people who are unvaccinated, where it has that longer time to live inside of them and less immune responses to have to evade. And eventually it's going to create variants that can get around the vaccinated people. And then we're going to have to redesign the vaccine over and over again. And it might just become more like a flu vaccine where we have, it doesn't mutate as quickly as a flu. So it'll be more effective. Right now, these vaccines are 99% effective. Mm-hmm. But it'll be like maybe every five years or it could even be every year or so we have to update the vaccine in order to mm-hmm. keep people protected. Okay, so interesting. We will see, you know, what happens over time and what the research shows. But I do feel like you've done a great job of kind of like putting people's minds at ease who may have been hesitant about the vaccine. What about for people who did already have COVID? Like, should, do, should they still get the vaccine? And if so, how come? Yeah. And this is what we talked about a little bit earlier is just the fact of if you've already had COVID, we don't know what type of COVID did you have? What was your antibody response? And so if you get the vaccine, then you can be standardized just like everybody else so that we can say, hey, this is when you're probably at risk again versus there's a chance that if you naturally had COVID, I mean, really great scenarios, you naturally had COVID, you got it pretty bad and you've got really great protection. But it could just mm-hmm. as likely be that you got COVID, you got it really bad, and your protection wears off after eight months, whereas people with the vaccine have two years, and so then you're at risk of getting reinfected. So mm-hmm. that's why I say if you've had COVID, uh, and not just myself, many other scientists as well as the CDC, recommend that if you've had COVID, that you still get the vaccine. Um, the only caveat just being that if you've recently had COVID, you should wait believe it's one month, 30 days from your last symptom to uh, getting the vaccine. And if you've had severe COVID and you had to have the antibody cocktail, then you've already got a bunch of antibodies floating around. So you should wait 90 days uh, until you get the vaccine. All right, cool. And then what do you recommend? I mean, I know you mentioned like your cousin who has Crohn's. What do you recommend for those subgroups where they're 
isn't a lot of research. Like I know for me, when the vaccine first came out, I was pregnant. So I was like, you know, if I have access to it, I probably am not going to get it just because there wasn't a ton of research and I didn't yet feel comfortable. And now I have had my first dose of the vaccine. I'm breastfeeding though. And that was, you know, definitely a question I asked and I talked to my pediatrician a lot about it and whatnot. And I felt good going ahead with it. But what do you recommend for those subgroups of people where there just isn't a ton of research and where there probably won't be just because, you know, it's obviously not ethical to, you know, make a pregnant woman get the vaccine just for the sake of studying it. So what do you recommend for those people? Yeah, yeah. I I recommend doing exactly what you did. That is a shining example of the responsible way to go about these things is uh, Mm -hmm. people who are in those subpopulations where you don't know and there's not a lot of research for you, speak to your, your physician. So, Who's going to know better about your condition and your health than the relationship that you have between you and your specific provider, whether that's, I get this question from a lot of people who have like arthritis um, or rheumatism. And again, yeah, from from mothers, whether they're breastfeeding or pregnant. So the best thing is always going to be to talk to your physician who knows your health and come to a conclusion that you're both comfortable with. I've seen it go both ways where mm-hmm. it's people like you who have come to the decision where you feel like it's safe, you trust it, and you go ahead and you get the vaccine. But I've also seen other people who've said, you know what, I'm going to wait off on this, or maybe I'm not going to get it. And I support I support it either way. I think it's just having that foundation of knowledge beforehand to make the decision that's best for you is what's most important. Yeah, totally. And I will say, you know, and I don't know if you're able to speak into this at all, but I just wanted to say this in case there's other breastfeeding moms listening. This was something I talked with my pediatrician a lot about was the fact that they're finding that the antibodies can be transferred through breast milk. So hopefully I'm giving my newborn whatever antibodies my body is building up. And I'm I'm just free- breastfeeding my newborn right now. I'm not breastfeeding my two-year-old anymore, but no judgment because I know some people breastfeed w- well beyond two years. But I talked to my pediatrician about using my the extra milk that I had for my toddler and because he drinks you know regular milk well he doesn't drink cow's milk but he was drinking like cashew milk and that kind of thing and so I was like do you think I could give my extra milk to my toddler you know I'm not going to tell him but (laughs) just so he could get those antibodies that I'm hopefully passing on and my pediatrician was like that's an awesome idea do that and so just if there are other breastfeeding moms out there you might ask your your doctor about doing that for uh, your other kids who aren't able to get the vaccine yet if you want to get them those antibodies (laughs) that is very cool I had not heard that before but that's really cool yeah yeah i know my my pediatrician was like shoot you should mix it in with your mashed potatoes and give it to the whole family (laughs) (laughs) like well i probably won't make my husband do that but you know if he wants it it's there (laughs) Uh, um, okay and then last question is uh well last question about the vaccine is what about So like you said, people are thinking like, oh, if I get the vaccine, I have a magic shield, so I don't have to do any of the other precautions. But why do we still need to continue wearing masks and social distancing even after we have gotten the vaccine? Yeah. So this just comes back to unvaccinated people. I I am personally of the camp of if you are vaccinated and you are going to hang out in a group of other fully vaccinated people two weeks post your Mm -hmm. second dose or whatever like that, 
I'm very for being back to normal. Uh, that's mm-hmm. in terms of what we can do as scientists with modern science, a vaccine is the, is the pinnacle point. This is what we were working towards. Mm-hmm. The only thing that I warn against is while you're doing that, if you're going to be interacting with unvaccinated people, just mm-hmm. acknowledge that there's still a risk for the time being that you could potentially spread. I'm very confident. I'm waiting for the science to come out before I give an official statement, but I'm in the history of vaccines, I cannot think of a single example where you get a vaccine and you are you don't reduce the risk of spreading the disease. Mm-hmm. So I'm very confident yeah. that, that those numbers all go down. That said, though, if you're going to start taking more risky behaviors, there's always a chance that you might have it and you could spread it to someone who's non-vaccinated still. Mm-hmm. And so either A, if you happen to be in a place where I have access to weekly testing, so I just get tested before I go home and see my family who's not yet vaccinated, mm-hmm. or B... Wear a mask if you're going to be out in public somewhere where you don't know the status of all the vaccinated people. Wearing that mask, mm-hmm. it, it reduces a lot. And so if the vaccine's already reduced it, then your mask is going to reduce it even more. And you don't have to worry about potentially, I know it's cliche, but killing someone's grandma or loved one because you spread the virus to them. Yeah. So it's more of a concern of if you are subjecting other people because you could be an asymptomatic carrier rather than a concern for yourself that you could still catch the virus because you're hanging out with unvaccinated people. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, once you've vaccinated yourself, you've done the most that you can possibly do in your power to prevent from this. Right. It would be a different story Mm -hmm. if the vaccines weren't as effective as they are. Yeah. Right. If like maybe you had like the flu vaccine with 30 percent, it'd be like, oh, yeah, well, you should probably still be taking some precautions until maybe we can find something that's better. But these vaccines are extremely effective. And the whole point of them is to get us back to to some sort of normal normalcy. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Okay, so were there I feel like we hit on a lot. Was there any other common questions or concerns that people have about the vaccine that I didn't ask that you wanted to hit on? No, I think you really you really asked a lot of great questions and a lot of the common ones that I get. The only one that we like sort of grazed over was just the whole vaccine having effect on fertility. Oh yeah. Which yeah. is is just that the answer is no. So there at this point there's a lot of people who have been vaccinated who have either gotten pregnant or had successful births. And uh-huh. so that was actually all that was a a really good cool case. A friend of mine who's another virologist down in Australia she actually traced out where all of this came from. And it actually was a case of misinformation just running rampant. Uh, it was a mm-hmm. virologist who was on a blog. So this wasn't a paper, wasn't anything. It was just like a, a blog between fellow scientists who said, uh-huh. oh, a small, tiny, tiny piece of this protein that we're trying to use for vac- that we might use for vaccines, because this was back in March before we'd even started all of the vaccines that were actually being tested out. It's like a tiny piece of it is similar to a fusion protein that is used to fuse the placenta. And so what if this antibody is targeted that fusion protein and now you can't do that? So you're going to like have infertility. It was a what if question. Like, I, I don't know where your viewers stand, but like, it's like one of the questions that I would have a couple drinks late at night and then be like, oh, that'd be crazy if this happened. <laughs> uh, so that's, that's where it was. But somebody found that and then took off with it. And so a lot of uh-huh. people looked into it and like, yeah, this, A, this portion is so small that the likeliness of this is ridiculous. B, we've seen this uh-huh. tested. It doesn't happen in animals and it's obviously not happening in humans by the time that the concern actually was raised around from it. But yeah, all of it came from somebody uh-huh. finding that one post and then saying like, this is what's going to happen. And it blew up really quick. And 
it was really cool to see her post. Uh, her name's Morgan. If, if you get a chance on Instagram, her handle is virus versus virus versus lab coat. Mm-hmm. Okay. But she did a really, really great piece where she talked about where that all came from and why it, it wasn't a reality at all. Okay, cool. Yeah, that's, that's so interesting. And that's, I feel like a really good thing for people to know. I, I don't know how you feel about this, but it sounds like we're right around the same age. And I know like when I was getting into college was really when like doing online research for papers was becoming more of a thing that we're learning how to do and like how to use the internet for research. And I feel like it's something that a lot of people still don't understand, especially like older generations who you know, when they were in college, they were literally going to the library and using books, like they weren't doing online research. And so I feel like it's something that so many people don't know how to do. And like, they don't understand that even if you're on a blog, and the person sounds legit, and maybe they really are a scientist or a doctor, like it's still a blog, you know, and that it's not a scholarly source, it's not technically a trustworthy source, like you can't submit a college paper citing blogs like it won't be accepted you know and and I say that even knowing I have a blog but that doesn't mean that like I'm a scientist so if I'm writing about the coronavirus on my blog that doesn't mean that it's academic necessarily so so yeah I feel like that's something really people need to be careful of and even sites like the Huffington Post is technically a blog like that's not a real newspaper and so yeah, I'm, I'm really passionate about telling people, cite your sources, check your sources, make sure they're legit because you really can't trust everything you read online. And I'm not just talking about social media. <laughs> oh, yeah, 100% agree. Even even news, I, I read newspapers. Uh, I just made a post where I was calling out CNN for like portraying their statistics in a in just the wrong manner, the wrong aspect. So yeah, yeah the, the difference between actual research will say when it comes to anything science is that it has to be peer reviewed. So if it's published in a paper, that means other scientists have looked at it. And fun fact, other scientists hate other scientists. Our favorite pastime is like tell them how they're wrong. And so essentially (laughs) you have to have really strong enough evidence that we can't tell you that it's wrong, Mm -hmm. which is what we're trying to do. And so it's that strong that it stands up. And unfortunately, blogs and even scientists like myself on a podcast or something like that, like I would fact check anything that you wanted to cite that I said, I would still fact check it and find an actual site that comes from either a a .gov or something that's from the NIH or or published paper in a peer-reviewed journal. Yeah, very good. And it's it's one of those things that's really hard because we might have like an idea that something is wrong. Like I think of the non-toxic movement kind of and how there's all these ideas of, oh, wow, is, you know, this shampoo that's filled with all these weird things, like, is this harmful? But even though we might have an idea and like a strong feeling that this might be unhealthy for us, it does take years to get that peer-reviewed research. And so that's not to say that you only ever get ideas from peer-reviewed research, but just be careful about, yeah, especially when it comes to conversations about medicine, like where you're getting your information, I think. Anyways, um, I digress. What is, if you had to pick one, the main message you want listeners to walk away with today? There's so many. Uh, I mean, the real thing that I want <laughs> people to walk away from is I just hope that they found some of this information helpful. Mm-hmm. And even if it gives them a jumping off point to go and talk to their own healthcare providers on whether or not, if they're on the fence of whether or not to get the vaccine, to just go Mm -hmm. and have those conversations and then Mm -hmm. really feel comfortable in their decisions. I think that would be the main thing. Mm -hmm. As an opinion piece, if 
you're using me as any sort of, of expertise, which again, it's always feels weird to be associated with that. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I, as somebody who studies viruses, uh, have gotten the vaccine. And so I would like if somebody didn't want to do all the extra legwork is just to take away that it seems like it's really well researched. These vaccines are safe and effective. And if you're on mm-hmm. the fence, it's worth getting. Mm-hmm. Agree. And I'm not even close to an expert, but I do agree. That's the decision point I came to. So <laughs> <laughs> that makes me very happy. But yeah, I have a few fun wrap up questions for you. This is another hard one. But if you had to pick one, what's the most impactful book that you read? Oh, wow. I'm going to say <laughs> personally, the most impactful book that I've read is a book called Out of the Silent Planet by C.S. Lewis. Oh, okay. Yeah, I I enjoy C.S. Lewis as a as an author. Uh, uh-huh. He started out as an atheist and then got into theism and then eventually got into Christianity. Mm-hmm. But so his work has a lot of like spirituality written throughout it, and it's not like yeah. heavy Christianity spirituality all the time. It's just right. I don't know it's very external plane. And so I had a friend that passed away right around the time that I read that book. And I just remember I walked away from that book with a feeling of not being afraid of death anymore, which was just really, oh, cool. is, yeah, it's a really beautiful feeling. So that's, it's been the most impactful like moment in a book that I've read in my life. Oh, that's so cool. Okay. Great recommendation. I wasn't sure if you were going to pick like a science book <laughs> of which I was nervous about. So that's a great recommendation. I mean, that's, that's science fiction. Uh, there's also a book yeah. called Start With Why by Simon Sinek that I really love that just talks about like finding your why in life. So if you're into like uh-huh. existential self-help, like eh, why, why am I doing this? And like, what can I do to be happy? I really enjoyed that one as well. Okay, cool. Great recommendations. What about something you've listened to recently that you think everybody should hear? So that could be like a podcast, a TED Talk, documentary, anything like that that you've watched or listened to. Hmm. Or you can recommend something you made since I know you are making videos and podcasts. Everybody should watch everything that I do. And I hate watching myself, to be honest. Um, So there's there's a segment on NPR that I really enjoy called Code Switch. One of the things I'm very diverse, I guess, in what I actually care about. Aside from just viruses, education is a huge topic. And I've more recently been getting into like social equity, especially with all of the police shootings and the social justice issue that we've been really highlighting in 2020. So I I found that Code Switch is a really great balance piece that tries to objectively look at some of the historical aspects that drive into particularly African-American and just like black inequality throughout America and like mm-hmm. what's happening now, how it ties into what's what's happened before. And they're a lot of fun to listen to. So yeah. I really enjoy that. Yeah, totally. But also any TED Talk ever is, I love TED Talks. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Okay, what about a brand or product that you are liking lately? So I am really obsessed with this company called The Happy Givers. Uh, I have two of their sweats. They, they've just got these sayings that really resonate with my, my soul. Oh, uh-huh. my goodness. Uh-huh. Uh, so they've got – I actually said one of them earlier is the people over profit is a really great one. Uh-huh. And then they have – one about like if you have the chance to be more successful, you should build a bigger table than building a bigger fence. And it's just it's just a lot of things about like just being a good person. And yeah, it's, it's it, they're part of a nonprofit. I wish a nonprofit was closer to continental United States, but they their mission is building homes for elderly and single mothers in Puerto Rico. So 
They're very oh, awesome cool. and I love their clothing. Yes, I have seen some of their stuff on social media and it is really cool. I, I love when I can wear something that like says a message that I agree with. So very <laughs> cool. All right. So how can people find you if they want to see your Science with Kenan stuff or learn more about the vaccine or anything like that? What's the best way to connect with you? Yeah, I'm very sporadic on social media. I still try to just use it when it's fun. Um, but you can find me on Instagram. That's my main platform, just at my name, at Kenneth Hutchison, uh, or uh -huh. also at Science with Kenan. And then I am I have a YouTube channel with some old videos on it, if you want to check those out, which is uh, Science with Kenan. You can also find me on the King of Random occasionally. But yeah, outside of that, Instagram is the best way to contact me. Or if you have questions, either shoot me a DM or email me at sciencewithkenan at gmail.com. Perfect. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much, Kenan, for your, your time. I took a lot of it today, but I really, really <laughs> appreciate it. I know it was really helpful for me. You know, I love talking about just vaccines in general. Honestly, you put me at ease with a lot of decisions that I have to make as a mom, but especially the vaccine that we're all talking about. That was really, really helpful. So thank you for your time. And I really enjoy what you're doing. So thanks for all the time you put into educating people because we need it. So thank you. <laughs> well, thank you. This was a lot of fun. So can you see why I love this conversation so much and why I was so excited to share it with you all? I feel like Kenan and I just blew up the internet with all the myths that we busted, but really I'm hoping that no matter where you stand on vaccines, that this conversation helped to put you at ease. Yes, there are some real concerns when it comes to big pharma and what they're pushing, but there's also a lot of trustworthy scientists and research behind these vaccines, and really all vaccines, that can give us more confidence in this medicine. If nothing else, I hope it gives you hope and excitement as together we start to see things go back to somewhat normal and hopefully this pandemic come to a close. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen today and please don't hesitate to reach out if you have any questions. I'm happy to help in any way that I can, but Kenan, the real expert here, would love to hear from you also. Links to connect with him and see all the cool work he's doing are in the show notes along with everything else we referenced and the link to shop Extrema Cookware. Don't forget about leaving a rating and a review for the show and subscribing so that you know when the next one is available. A new episode will air next Thursday and I have lots of good stuff in store. In the meantime, make sure you always check your information sources, especially when it comes to decisions about your health. Talk to your doctor if you need help deciding if the vaccine is right for you and keep seeking to get enlightened. Peace out. Face, searching by